Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Hi, everybody, and welcome to, uh, to Talks at GS. Uh, Katie Kirk needs no introduction, but I'm going to try. Uh, she's been a household name ever since co-anchoring today on NBC. She was the first woman to be named solo anchor of one of the big three nightly news broadcasts, anchoring the CBS Evening News after leaving NBC in 2006. Since then, Katie hosted her own talk show and was the global anchor at Yahoo News. And Katie is currently hosting her own popular podcast, as you just saw, new documentary series on National Geographic called America Inside Out with Katie Kirk that we're all very excited about, where she tackles some of the toughest issues confronting the country today, from race to women's rights to the impact of technology on all of our lives. And for me, the fact that I get to interview one of the greatest interviewers of all time, I mean, that's like, that's like cool, like really cool, <laughs> really cool. And, and a good friend for a long time. And so it's a real delight to have you here, Katie. That's Thank right. Our, our girls went to school together, so it's fun for Played me to... volleyball together. And, yeah. You know, stood on the sideline of the gym. Yeah. Cheering for years. <laughs> they were, they, they, you know, they've progressed to other things, so all good. That's all good. right. So first, you know, when we start these, we always, you know, I want to talk about the series. I want to talk about some of the things you're doing. And I know that the audience wants to hear about your thoughts on some of the really interesting topics that you're wrestling with. But I just have to start, because we always like to do this, you were always interested in journalism from a young age. You grew up in Virginia. Talk a little bit about you know, what influenced you. You had this clear interest. You know, why this clear interest in reporting and storytelling? Where did it come from? How did you kind of get started? Well, my uh, first of all, hi, everyone. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, you know, I grew up in Northern Virginia in Arlington. And uh, I'm the youngest of four children and very educated. Um, interesting parents. My dad was a print journalist for many years. He wrote for the Atlanta Constitution covering politics and then he worked for United Press. My mom was a housewife but very ambitious for all of her kids and really put a premium on education. And uh, I think because I was always a pretty good writer growing up, I was very proud when my eighth grade teacher read my essay in front of the class. And I always loved words every day, uh, every night we had to bring a new word to the dinner table. Wow. And uh, well, that lasted not that long, but it was over a period <laughs> of time. But my best one was perspicacity, which I thought was a great word. And um, that is so, a good word. yeah, and so, um, my dad really encouraged me to pursue a career in journalism during, at, I wrote for my high school newspaper in college. I went to the University of Virginia. I wrote for the Cavalier Daily, Wahoo Wah, if any UVA people are out there. And, um, and then during the summers, I worked at radio stations in Washington uh, as an intern, really before internships were so prevalent, David. Right. I got the, I remember getting out the phone book and just, calling all these stations and asking if I could come and work for free. And well, it, was, it was a different, I mean, I think about that all the time. When I was in college, people didn't rush to go work. People were waiting tables, uh, you know, working in bars. I mean, that's what you did at college, you tried to make some money. Internships weren't really developed. No, and I guess, you know, that's actually a very good point. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in a position where, uh, you know, we were pretty decidedly middle class, but I could afford to have an internship. Yeah. Which is interesting because I did a panel just parenthetically on racism, on on yeah, on on race and uh, at Stanford with Brian Stevenson and a bunch of other people, and we were talking about white privilege. And one of the professors at Stanford said, "I'll give you an example of white privilege: summer internships." Yeah. Which I thought was really a very Absolutely. cogent and interesting point. But anyway, so I worked in radio, and then when I graduated from UVA. I tried to get a job, I think, at the Washington Post and wasn't able to do that. And I decided, gosh, you know, television is much more lucrative than print journalism, <laughs> being the good capitalist girl I am. And I thought, um, why not try to get a job in television? So I started working at ABC News in Washington as a desk assistant, which basically meant answering phones, distributing rundowns, getting Frank Reynolds, who was the anchor at the time of World News Tonight, 
ham sandwiches from the deli next door. You know, really kind of very go-free yeah. jobs, yeah. but it was a good it was a good introduction to television news. And then from there, I went to CNN, and then I wor worked in local news, and then ultimately came to NBC to be the deputy Pentagon correspondent because Tim Russert saw me following Mayor Marion Barry all over Washington and nipping at his heels, and he thought I. He thought I had a lot of spunk. And unlike Lou Grant, Tim liked spunk. Yeah, you, and you still have spunk. I, only, only older people are going to get my jokes here. I'm realizing <laughs> that. That's from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Anyway, it's on like uh, TV Land or something. Check it out. <laughs> people get that joke. Yeah. So going back, I want to talk about CNN just for a minute, because when you started at CNN, it was the very early days of cable news. And yeah. your bureau chief <clears throat> asked you to go do a live report at the White House but it didn't necessarily go as planned. No. So tell that story. What did well, you learn from this experience? Tell the story and what did you learn from the experience? Well, I started at CNN in 1980. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was when everyone was calling it chicken noodle news. You know, everyone was mocking it. They thought it was ridiculous. Ted Turner was insane. But I thought it would be a great opportunity. It was a non-union shop. And I'd worked at ABC and saw very clearly it was going to take me years and I would never become a reporter at ABC because it was the network. I'd have to go into local news. So when CNN happened, I thought, gosh, I can work on the assignment desk. I can be a producer. And I really learned about every job in television news, which was invaluable. Sure. And uh, but I was working in Washington as a desk assistant, as really assistant assignment editor. I had really progressed in the world. And Stuart Laurie, who was the bureau chief, said, Katie, uh, why don't you go to the White House and do a live report about what was on the president's schedule that day? Well, oh my god, I'd never done really reporting. I was a nervous wreck. I always tell the story that I stayed up all night, like with my hairbrush, talking in my mirror, you know, trying <laughs> to look very official. And then I got there, and the husband and wife anchor team uh, said, I heard in my IFB during the commercial, they said to each other, who is that girl? She looks like she's 16 years old. And of course, that was a real confidence booster right before they threw to me. And I, they threw to me and I was like, today the president is meeting with national security advisors, the big new Brzezinski. And I was terrible. I mean, terrible. And I knew it right away. And I got back to CNN and the, Bill Hensel, the very nice assignment editor said, Reese Schoenfeld, who was president of CNN, said he never wanted to see you on the air again. And I was like, wah, wah. <laughs> so well, kinda, I remember. Kind of kind of worked out OK. Well, you know, I think it was it was really actually great criticism. I wasn't ready. Right. Um, while I appreciated the opportunity, I just wasn't ready. And I knew that. And I remember seeing that coffee cup that said, don't let the turkeys get you down. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to keep trying. I'm just going to keep working, and I firmly believe in Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, uh, I guess sort of uh, position that you have to do something for 10,000 hours before you get before good you at it. Sure. And I hadn't done it for one minute, so right. I had no reason, you know, no business doing that. So I kept working and working, and then when I went to Atlanta, I happened to have a very good mentor. Named, two, named Don Farmer and Chris Curl, two, a married couple mm -hmm. who did a show called Take Two from noon to two every day on CNN. And I was a producer there. And they were very encouraging, gave me opportunities, you know, gave me feedback on my work. And I started to get better and better. And then I got an offer to go to local news in Miami um, because I still wasn't good enough to be a correspondent at CNN. And I also had a kind of strange experience with the vice president of CNN who made a really grotesque, sexist remark to me, and I called him out on it. And I think I ultimately paid for standing up to him. He didn't really want to give me any more opportunities after that. Well, that, I'll, that'll, that'll, I'll discuss I'll that more later. Come back to that when we get More later. It. We're going we're gonna to make that circle, and we're going to get into some of that. I just thought I'd throw that little nugget out. Make sure everybody was awake. You set me off in my set me off in my timing. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Oh, we'll return okay. to that later. So you're you you're down in Miami, your local news, but ultimately you wind up you wind up on the Today Show. And when you when you when you took that job, I mean that was a big deal. That was a that was a really big deal. And so yeah, you know, it was shocking. <laughs> 
so when you when you when you step into something like that, what you know, what do you remember the challenges when you stepped into that? What were your expectations? How do you think about the challenges of taking an anchor job like that? Well, you know, I had worked at, after I worked at CNN. I then went to Miami and local news, which gave me constant like. Talk about those building up those 10,000 hours. I was doing live shots all the time. Miami is a fantastic local market because there's so many important national stories, especially back then uh, in the 80s when the I 80s was there. Was you know, around. obviously yeah. a lot of stories about drug dealers and uh, immigration stories. I spent a lot of time at the Chrome Detention Center doing stories about refugees from Haiti and things like that. And so that was an incredible experience. And then I went and worked at local news in Washington, mm -hmm. and that's where Tim Russert saw me. Right. And he hired me to be the deputy Pentagon correspondent, which was a really great way to sort of prove my news chops and that I had gravitas, which I've decided is Latin for testicles, but we'll get more on that later. <laughs> we'll get to that uh, later yeah. too. Yeah. So, um, so, so I was a deputy Pentagon correspondent, and then I became the they still laugh at my jokes. At, my friends have heard these so many times, but they still laugh at my jokes, which is so great, but they're paid to laugh at my jokes. <laughs> but anyway, so um, I was deputy Pentagon correspondent and I was doing some pieces for the Today Show. And I, I, this again is ancient history, but the Today Show had had a difficult transition from Jane Pauley to Deborah Norville. Right. And so unfortunately through their kind of uh, clumsy management and sort of lack of sort of awareness of the dangers and pitfalls of making a change like that and alienating the audience as mm -hmm. they did. Um, I was the beneficiary of that and that's when I got the job at the Today Show and I think my biggest concern honestly was that I wanted to make sure I wasn't relegated to fashion and cooking segments. You know I had worked really hard to establish my news bona fides, if that's how you say it. And, uh, and I didn't want to suddenly do all feature things. So when I was offered the job, I don't know where I had the chutzpah to do, ask uh, Michael Gartner, the then president of NBC News this, but I said, I'm happy to take this job. I mean, I'm thrilled, obviously, but I need to make sure there's a 50-50 division of labor so between gonna, me and Brian you know, Gumbel. Brian, I was gonna ask you about that. So I mean, to say something like that, I know. You're, you're coming in, you're the, you're the rookie, so to speak. Yeah. And so what was the reaction to you making a statement? I mean, you really s stood up for yourself and what you wanted, and what was the reaction? Yeah, to? you know, I don't know where I, again, had the confidence, uh, but I, I just knew that if I, if I didn't establish it from the onset, that there would be, I didn't want to have to have an uphill battle my entire tenure at the Today Show. I think Michael Gartner was actually kind of, I remember sitting in his office. Well, first of all, I was pregnant and he was not excited about that uh, because, uh, you know, that really screwed up their planning <laughs> for, for the transition to, at the Today Show. And uh, he said, you have really lousy timing. And I thought, wow, you, you could not say that today, right? No. That, would, that is not a... <laughs> Not a, so not a cool I think I said something, does that mean you're not going to be knitting me any baby booties anytime soon? <laughs> and, but I said the 50-50 thing, and he said, he looked at me and he said, how about 49-51? And I said, I can live with that. But I think it set the tone right away that I was, that I was there to be an equal partner right. with Brian Gumbel, who, you know, has a very strong personality. Yeah. And uh, he still, you know, had to make sure that he was the one that threw the weather every day. He was the one that threw the commercial breaks. I mean, it's so silly. And I really just wanted an equal division of labor. And so um, I'm really happy that I, at 32, I think, maybe 33, had the moxie or whatever you want to call it. The confidence yeah. to basically you know, demand, you know, your position in that. Yeah, that was, that, but I demanded very nicely. Yeah, but I mean, there's, <laughs> you can always demand nicely, but you, you asked. Yeah. Um, and as a young woman coming up in an industry that was, you know, pretty heavily dominated by men, that was a big deal. All men in, in the management structure, and I remember one of them in particular told me he didn't like the way I was dressing on the show. He wanted me to wear little earrings and fuzzy sweaters. And I basically told him to, to jump in a lake and I was gonna dress the way I wanted to dress. That also would not be appropriate today. I mean, the jump in the lake would be totally Well, you know, it's, and I think television being a very visual medium, I yeah. think, you know, he's, 
you know, and I think he was trying to be helpful ostensibly, but I just basically said, you know, and I, I think when I got to the Today Show, I said, you know, I'm just going to be who I am. I, I knew and still don't know anything about sports, for example. So when Brian Gumbel, who came from the sports world, would talk about sports, I would not try to fake it. So I think I really wanted to be who I was authentically because I also thought that viewers could really, really be able to tell when someone was faking it or putting on the dog, as my mom would say. So I think coming in, I think, uh, you know, there was a, a switch from sort of quaffed junior Miss contestants doing the news to people who were really genuine and well, normal. People, really, people were, your success came from the fact that people connected with you. Yeah, people and I think really that was part of, yeah. part, part of the secret of my success, that people felt like I was relatable, that I was relatively normal. You know, I remember when it came to what I was wearing every day, I would always want to wear something that women in the audience, not everyone obviously, but could afford. And I always in my mind's eye thought, I'm, I hope that the person watching me is a young associate at a law firm who is smart, engaged, and interested in the world. And so that's kind of the person who I was always thinking was watching me, or a young mom, but mm -hmm. people who cared about what was going on, engaged, and wanted to, to be informed. Yeah. You had a, you interviewed you uh, you had you went over to the White House to interview George H W Bush in 1992. Uh huh. It was actually Barbara Bush. Was it Barbara Bush? Yeah. Okay. Well, they didn't they didn't or he didn't necessarily think you were there to interview him. Right. Well, well, right. Tell, tell the story. What happened? Yeah. Great story. So so um, I think it was the 200th anniversary of the White House, if I recall, and I was doing a tour of the White House with Mrs. Bush, and I remember studying everything. Like I knew everything in the White House, like the Dolly Madison tea set and the, what do they call the ball and claw feet and all the Chippendale chairs. And so I had really, I mean, I was a maniacal over-preparer, mm. unlike I am today. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, I kind of wing most things today. But um, so, so I was getting this tour of the White House and suddenly I hear Ranger, the Cocker Spaniel, you know, kind of his feet. And lo and behold, President Bush walked in at the end of the interview. I had no idea that he was going to show up. So I ended up having to kind of grab him and engage in conversation with him for like 19 minutes and 26 seconds or something like that, who's counting. And I was asking him about Iran-Contra and about President, it was during the, the election. Right. And, you know, it was just, it was just this crazy live television moment where I was really not prepared. I saw sort of my career flash before my eyes because I thought, oh God, am I going to start asking him like, what is what's his favorite dinner at the White House? And But luckily I was able to keep the conversation going. It was kind of a breakthrough wasn't, moment wasn't for me. It wasn't a moment, it was a, it was a segment. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Say. But Real. it got a lot of attention, I got think. Got a lot of attention. So talk, um, talk a little bit, you know, in 2006, when you um, were named anchor on the CBS Evening News, now that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was a very, very big deal. And, you know, the news world was changing a lot. And you kind of stepped right into the middle of that. But start first, you know, what did it mean to be the anchor on CBS Evening News? Not just to you, but also as you kind of looked out to the audience, what did you hear from from people out in the audience about what it meant to have you sitting in that seat? Well, it was a huge, obviously, a huge privilege and a huge compliment that I was approached to do that job. I mean, I love doing the Today Show, but I've been, been doing it for 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, no matter how good a show is, things start to feel repetitive, especially, you know, the lighter segments. Yeah. And I love that job, and I think it was probably the job I was best suited for in my career because I got to do serious interviews, but also have fun. And, sure. you know, I'm an outgoing person. I enjoy laughing and I'm kind of interested in so many different things. It was a very good fit. But when Les Moonves approached me and said, you know, we'd love to have you come do the evening news, I thought, wow, well, a woman had never been the solo anchor. Barbara Walters had done it with Harry Reisner. Connie Chung had done it with Dan Rather. But they had never felt that a woman was capable of doing that job by herself. 
And you're right, sort of the landscape was already shifting at yeah. that point in time, but it was still incredibly prestigious. Yeah. And CBS was a very, you know, prestigious network. And so I decided, well, gosh, that's, that's I almost also felt a bit of a responsibility to take that on. And I, I, I have always thought, and that's one of the reasons I wanted this 50-50 division of labor with Bryant, the television projects, it's very important, the images it projects. Sure. And it really does shape minds, you know, hearts and minds. I just did, one of my hours was on gender inequality and it talked a lot about implicit bias and how cultural conditioning really makes our brain make these associations with, in terms of stereotyping and gender roles. Right. And so I thought, gosh, if I have an opportunity to be a strong, competent, capable woman and have young girls and young boys see that, perhaps I could break down some of these barriers that existed for women. Yeah. And so that's why I did the job. And I remember I was on a trip to the Galapagos and I met this cute mom and her daughter and she said, we were so excited when you got the job on the CBS Evening News. I picked my daughter up early from school. I, ke I kept her from going to soccer practice. We rushed home, we turned on the TV, we saw you, we were so excited. And then we never watched you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, as we said, the landscape was changing. <laughs> it's like, why did you tell me that story? People are, people are so weird, aren't yeah. they? But anyway, um, but it was, it, you know, I really felt like it was a great opportunity and I'm really glad I did it, but it was incredibly challenging because as I've said in commencement addresses, when you're a trailblazer, it's easy to get burned. And there was a lot of backlash against, I think, this, this novelty of having a, fe uh, a lone female as the anchor, you know, in a patriarchal society, not to get all woke on you people, but you know, um, you know, people expect certain images yeah. and it's jarring, I think. And additionally, I think I was brought in to shake things up. And I think in retrospect, I probably shook things up a little too much. We sort of tinkered with the format. And I think if I had to do it again, I would have done it as a very, very extremely straight, just, uh, no frills newscast, and I think we tried to do some, you, some, you, you know, some different things. Yeah, 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 some different things yeah. that I think it was jarring enough. I think for CBS viewers who are used to Bob, you know, Dan Rather, and then Bob Schieffer, suddenly I come along, and I'm sure they're like, "What?" And I think it probably should have been a more traditional more newscast. Traditional format. Yeah. And I think also, you know, I was brought in by Les Moonves with not tremendous buy-in from the rank and file at CBS. And it's an, I think of all the networks, it's the most traditional. Um, and they, I think, resented somebody coming in from the outside. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they thought, again, I didn't have gravitas enough to take that job on, despite the fact that people like John Chancellor and Tom Brokaw had done the Today Show. Somehow that their gravitas in making that transition wasn't questioned as much. Yeah. And um, so that was, that was really, really challenging. And, uh, but I, I'm glad I did it, and I'm really proud of the work I did during sure. those five years. I think I did some incredibly important uh, stories. I think my sensibility as a woman, um, and, and through my lens, I think we covered some things that quite honestly, I don't think if it had been men in charge, they would have covered. And as the managing editor, I had the authority to say, I want to do something on sexual assault in the military. I want to do something on dating violence. I want to bring some of these issues to the forefront. And that was incredibly gratifying for me. Sure. And then of course I did an extremely impactful interview with Sarah Palin in 2008. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that was, um, you know, I'm really proud of that interview as well. Yeah. That was a great interview. For, for me. Yes. <laughs> That's why it was a great interview. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I mean, just to talk about that for a second, yeah, just sure. because I don't want to seem smug and, and self-congratulatory about that interview. I thought it was really important because people did not know much about Sarah Palin. And when I was preparing for that interview, I asked a lot of people I respected, people like Sam Nunn and Madeleine Albright and Richard Haas, you know, what kinds of questions do you think I should be asking Governor Palin? And they gave me some guidance, but I think Madeleine Albright gave me the best advice at all, of all. She said, just let her talk. 
she said, people don't know where she stands. They don't know, you know, her point of view on a whole host of issues, policy issues, foreign policy issues, domestic issues, and don't, you know, resist the temptation to kind of, and that was really good advice because I think in a, in a conversation or an interview, if there's dead air, it's extremely awkward. Yeah. So the tendency is to jump in, but I remember I just would ask her a question and let her, let her talk. And I think the more she talked, the more evident it became that she really was out of her depth. When yeah. it came to public policy, accumulated knowledge and ability to be a critical thinker. So I think that it was really important. It was really important. Other than that, she was great. But <laughs> no, but, but I think it was really important for voters to see that this was someone who was going to be a heartbeat away from the president. I think it spoke, it said something about uh, John McCain's judgment. Oh, with all, with, with all seriousness, that is what serious news is supposed to do. It's supposed to give the public, you know, real insight, and you know, we, we, we get away from that in the world. You know, we navigate and let them make a decision. Let them make a you decision. know, and Absolutely. I tried. Yeah. My questions were, I think, all fair. They mm -hmm. were not gotcha questions. The one that's often remembered is one that was just kind of a throwaway that I yeah. was asking for B-roll. Yeah. Um, well, I was interested, honestly, when somebody is so um, doctrinaire, yeah. uh, politically doctrinaire, I wanted to understand what shapes those points of view, yeah. what kinds of things do they read, and what, you know, what they gather and what helps them form their opinions. Yeah. And I, I was curious, you know, was she going to say William F. Buckley? Honestly, was she going to say the Bible? I didn't know. I said, what books and magazines do you, or newspapers and magazines do you read on a regular basis? I don't have this verbatim, but that helps shape your yeah. worldview. Yeah. And that's when she said kind of anything and everything. And then, she, then I sort of pressed her on it. And she said, you know, people in Alaska read. And I said, I know people in Alaska read. I just wanted to know specifically. But I think she was so aggravated by me at that point in time, yeah. she just wanted me to go away. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a theme in a number of the things you did um, as a young woman in an industry that was, was very, very male-dominated at a time that was early right. you know, in terms of there being change. So you, know, you look at us today, and there is a major shift in the conversation about men and women in newsrooms, in boardrooms, in corporations, you know, broadly everywhere. What do, you, what do you make of the moment that we're in? And as a woman who's really, you know, very visible and a leader, you know, why is it taking so long? And kind of where, where are we, you know, at this moment? Well, that's such an easy question, David. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I think it's incredibly exciting mm -hmm. that there has been this awakening about uh, the workplace. If you look at the statistics about the number of women on boards, and you can all watch this in my episode that ran on Wednesday night, because it has everything about um, at least Silicon Valley and Hollywood. I usually I use those as two major industries and kind of examine those. Um, you know, the numbers are pathetic. They are. They're, They're really embarrassing and pathetic in 2018 that there are not more women in the corner office, that there are not more women in Hollywood directing major films, that, women, that the pay gap is so severe, and that, um, you know, that, that women haven't achieved more at this moment. And I think it's taken this new generation, and I've been thinking, obviously, a lot about these issues, but I, we well, have daughters, talking, yeah, and I have a 26-year-old and a 22-year-old. And I think, you know, it can maybe be traced back to the way we've been, that college students are now ta taught about and discuss consent and sort of aff affirmative consent, and they just, I think, have a very different impression of how sort of the rules of engagement in general for men and women. And I think when you're seeing these generational divides, for example, in the New York Times newsroom or in other places, I think a lot of it can be traced back to this new uh, kind of perspective mm -hmm. on what is okay and what is not okay, not only in the workplace, but in all situations, generally. Yeah. generally. And so I think that, um, you know, when I got into to television news, I used to joke that 
I entered the field when harass was two words instead of one. And now I actually don't like to even make that joke because sadly, it's still, I think, the case in too many work environments. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what women of my generation kind of tolerated and put up with and maybe rolled their eyes about, I was lucky. I've never, uh, except for that one incident, which I can uh, talk about in a second, but I've been relatively luck lucky. I don't know whether it's I've just been kind of exuded this don't F with me, fellas, uh, attitude. And, um, you know, I've always had that kind of self-confidence. But um, I think that clearly there has been an environment where some of these behaviors have been allowed to exist. Right. And I think part of the problem is, as, as I see it, whether it's in television news or any industry, that the quote-unquote rules of engagement have never been clear. I think that diversity training, sexual harassment training, this whole arena has been kind of given lip service by corporate leaders. And I think they, that it's really up to leaders like you, quite frankly, to really make it, it clear to the rank and file and to everyone in an organization that diversity is really important to you, mm -hmm. that personal conduct is really important to you, personal and professional conduct. And I just think that there's been a lack of leadership in this area across many, many businesses and companies in this country. And, you know, I, I've been shocked to hear that certain behaviors that I have witnessed throughout my career and seen in terms of office relationships that have been gone, that have been relative, a relatively open secret, that that is against company policy mm -hmm. because you would never really know it. And if people in leadership positions are not following company policy, um, then you've got a problem. Yeah. It's not clear enough, yeah. and it's not being enforced. Yeah. Well, so, unfortunately, as a leader of a big company, I agree with you. As leaders, we have to do a lot more than we've done. Yeah. And and we're working at it, but we got a lot more to do. But it, it feels to me like we're at a moment where there's more momentum broadly to move the needle, and hopefully we're going to make more progress. But well, there's, I hope there's still so. a lot of work to do. I think there has to be much more transparency, too, Absolutely. and a much more of a come-to-Jesus moment for these places to say, you know, to say there's no problem here. Um, I, you know, I do have an issue with internal investigations. I don't think that they're, they're uh, really reliable or efficient, and there is a huge conflict of interest when people are investigating themselves. I just don't think it's it's legitimate. Sure. sure. And I think that uh, you know these this cultural course correction is going to take a lot of honesty, a lot of seriousness, and a lot of transparency. Yeah. And if that doesn't happen, then I think that we're missing a, an enormous opportunity. Yeah. But this is not oh, this is not just about gender equality. This is about diversity and inclusion, and it's about giving people an opportunity to succeed in this country from different socioeconomic backgrounds, being much more open to opportunities. You know, when I interviewed Kara Swisher for my, for my hour on gender in, uh, inequality, she talked about a meritocracy versus a meritocracy, an M-I-R-R-O-R-tocracy, mm -hmm. where people tend to hire people who look like themselves. Of course. Who, you know, are in their university networks or who can play golf with them. And that's got to change. Yeah, it's got to change significantly. And so it'll be it'll be interesting to see. There's, you know, leaders like yourself, and candidly, leaders like myself, talking about it, doing things, trying to speak, take specific actions. It's really important. Well, one of the things that you know, I think there are specific things that can be done. Uh, the Silicon Valley women I interviewed talked about mm -hmm. the Rooney Rule, which was named after Dan Rooney. And I don't know if you all are familiar with the Rooney Rule, but that required people in the NFL in a coaching or management opening that a minority candidate had to be interviewed uh, for that position. And a woman I interviewed uh, for the hour said that their number of women increased or uh, minority people, 75%. And she said, you cannot hire people that you don't know exist. You know, so if you don't bring them into the interview process, you have obviously- to create, You have to create, and I'm a big advocate, you have to create, when you get to the roots of these things, you have to create real practices that change the fundamental behaviors- Definitely. That lead to the results. So if you're, if you're looking at pools that are 
that are a certain way, you have to change the, the end result behavior. We're trying to do that here, but it takes a lot of work. It does take a, a lot, lot of work, but I think it's really it's worth really it. Important. It's Because I think, it. you know, the diversity of backgrounds and opinions, it just makes organizations better. Absolutely. Not better, it's an, it better and it's an absolute necessity. It's an absolute necessity to have the best people. Yeah. And uh, in that context, it's something that, that, that organizations have to do. And, and I think we have to redefine the word best. Yeah. You know, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I think that best means really diverse, really inclusive, place where people want to work, place where people want to lead. But to do that, you have to be very, very open and you have to track all different kinds and you've got to set up a system where the biases break down and you really allow people to come into exactly, the because, you know, and it uh, takes that takes an awful lot of work in big organizations, especially big organizations that are rooted in lots of history. Yeah, yeah. and I think not only in terms of bringing people into the organization, but once they're there, to allow them to thrive. Because I think you can, you can have diversity, but without inclusion, uh, you know, it doesn't work. Absolutely, it's only you know, one So step. that means to, to really watch your, and, and, and lot, so many of these things are subtle too. David, you know, they are not necessarily, can't be implemented in policy, but I'm on the board of a big organization and I've just looked at things differently when, you know, and this is something for women too, you know, that they need to realize when you're in this big board meeting and it's a lot of, you know, big, impressive people. And I noticed that when women have something to say, they often apologize for it. They're like, you know, I'm not sure if this is really relevant or, you know, I'm just throwing this out there. Well, you never hear men behaving like that. They never say, you know, I, you know, they don't apologize for contributing to the conversation. So I see that and I say, hey, don't apologize before you add something. And again, you know, like I know Valerie Jarrett at the White House, they often would talk about something which is called heat-peating, where a woman will bring up an idea and everybody's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then the man will bring up an idea and the same idea and everyone's like, that is brilliant. And so um, I think that being aware of these, these, these almost cultural and social they're, dynamics. They're, they're unconscious biases yes, that exist. And that's and, what you know, we talked about in the episode gotta, yeah, too. It's gotta, it's gotta be worked through. I wanna pivot and start talking about America Inside Out. Okay. Because I'm looking at the clock and we've got, we've got uh, I, I clearly wanna spend some time on this. There, there, are, there are a bunch of topics that you're you know, really attacking in this. Talk a little bit about, you know, talk a little bit about why you wanted to do this and you know, how you're thinking about you know, this platform and the topics that you can tackle. Well, you know, as we all know, the news cycle has become so instantaneous and accelerated with social media, with our phones, and you know, permanently attached Touch. to our hands 24 seven, which you saw, I have an issue with that. And I thought, you know, we're, we're, we're living in such a fast paced world it's hard to kind of, and all these events are happening, it's almost impossible to keep up with things that we don't have an opportunity to step back and say, um, wait a second, what is, we are going through such revolutionary changes, societal uh, changes and really seismic shifts in so many different arenas. Absolutely. I'm sure you all see it here at Goldman Sachs and your various sectors and how the, you know, things technology, are Technology, technology is changing everything. Right. Businesses, the way people connect, the way the world works, it's just constant. But you not only have technology, you also have huge demographic changes. You Absolutely. know, by 2044, the country is going to become minority majority. Mm -hmm. and that is very threatening to a certain segment of the population. So you've got those huge demographic shifts. You've got huge geographic shifts with people leaving rural and rural America and the Rust Belt, young people fleeing to bigger cities, which is great for cities and, you know, and urbanization, but really devastating for many of these communities. Yeah. So, um, and then as you mentioned, we have all these technological changes, which are, ch are really, I think, changing the ways we relate to, to everyday, sure. you know, to, uh, to people, to our family, to our friends, to the world at large. And so I thought, gosh, nobody's talking about this stuff. You know, when I was in Charlottesville, uh, well, I noticed at Yale where, where my daughter Ellie went to school, my safety school, I was like, whatever, if you want to go there, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, and I noticed there was a whole conversation about changing the name of John uh, Calhoun College. Yeah. And, it made, and then it made me think, wow, what's going on here? You know, we're starting to look at history differently. We're starting to re-examine the people we commemorate 
My late husband went to Washington and Lee. He was, believe it or not, a Confederate reenactor. I, I just sort of like, it's so interesting to me because I'd love to talk to him today about what's going on with this re-examination of Confederate iconography across mm -hmm. the country. But anyway, I thought so we should talk about this. Yeah. Like, it, because it's not just about statues, it's about race. It's about history. It's about the history that we've commemorated and, and, and celebrated and the history that we've neglected and completely ignored. It's about coming to terms with our past in order to move toward the future. Sure. And so to me, as a history major and somebody who cares deeply about race and, uh, you know, and, and, and all those issues, that was such a fascinating examination to talk about the lost cause narrative and the mythology of the Confederacy to, and that, you know, popularized by movies like Gone with the Wind and to talk about um, you know, when these statues were erected at the height of the Jim Crow era and, and later after Brown versus Board of Education. They were really an affront to African Americans as they were making progress in this sure. country in many ways. And my, the best compliment I've gotten from people who have watched this series, and I hope you all will watch it because I worked really, really hard, <laughs> uh, is, you know, I never thought of it that way. That completely changed my opinion changed view. when yeah. I heard this. And I thought, gosh, what is wrong that somehow this kind of information and this, this kind of knowledge is not getting out to people so they can make an informed opinion instead of have a knee-jerk reaction and get in a fight on Twitter about something. If they, I think, you know, it's really the responsibility of journalists to educate the electorate so they can make, so they can have informed opinions. And I feel so privileged and so grateful to National Geographic to give me an opportunity to kind of roll up my sleeves and dig into these issues. I was in Charlottesville for that horrendous, horrific, disgusting white supremacy rally in August. And it got a lot of coverage on the news that day. It was on a Saturday. And, uh, you know, people talked about it a bit. And then because the news cycle is so fast and furious, people forgot about it. Yeah. And I thought, God, we need to examine what was going on there. What have these Confederate statues come to symbolize? How have they been co-opted by white supremacists in this country? And do they deserve to be in public spaces? Yeah. And, you know, and so I, I was really so gratified to be able to uh, have a chance to look into that issue and then to look into what is it like to be a Muslim in America right in America right now? I mean, 50% of Americans say they've never met a Muslim. It's the fastest growing pop, uh, religion in the world. And uh, Islamophobia is really on the, the rise. Hate crimes against Muslims are on the rise. And I wanted to understand what that's like. And I think that, again, that's because of the narrative that has been created by misinformation mm -hmm. and by, uh, I think, uh, a biased, news media and uh, and then that has been I think ingested by people and created fear and which is often irrational yeah that's a great it's a great moment I think to when we have a clip from from one of the new episodes that I think oh yeah can, can I set that up yep set so so tell us about what we're about to see from an episode you're calling white anxiety yeah and we'll so run the clip. like most people I wanted to understand uh, these changing demographics and the anxiety that a lot of white working class Americans were experiencing in a non-judgmental way, in an open-hearted way to try to, you know, uh, be, I think a lot of these people deserve our empathy and understanding, you know? And I think that once you generalize about any group, that's when you're in big trouble. So I went to Fremont, Nebraska, and I went to Storm Lake, Iowa, which is already a majority minority population, to talk about how two different communities are de dealing with immigration. And then I went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and to talk about sort of this switch from a, an industrial to a technological society that we're seeing. And also about deaths of despair, like drug overdoses, mm -hmm. alcoholism, and suicide. And in Erie, Pennsylvania, for example, the average suicide is, I think in the whole country, is a 47-year-old white male. And I remember seeing that statistic in the newspaper and saying, 
we need to explore this. We need mm -hmm. to understand what's going on here. But anyway, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I met some EMS workers and I knew that they had certain points of view, or I assumed they had certain points of view about some of these hot button cultural issues. So sitting around a table, I asked them about two of them to get their reaction and something pretty profound happened as I had this conversation with them. Okay, so let's run this clip. Okay. But back in Johnstown, after riding along with Jim, I sat down with his fellow EMS workers for a slice of pizza. Thank you. And a surprising conversation that has really stayed with me. What do you all think of the whole Colin Kaepernick controversy? <laughs> the person who sparked this was adopted by white parents and given every opportunity in the world and wants to talk about white privilege. That, to me, is hypocritical. Yeah, it started off as a protest by one person, but now you're getting the people putting their hands up in the air with the black power stuff. It's getting out of hand. Um, Tell me your reaction when I say these three words, black lives matter. Everybody's lives matter. Um, and Carlos walks in. <laughs> Carlos. <laughs> on cue. Right on cue. I mean, your life matters. So does mine, so does Jim's, so does Carlos. Well, you walked into a loaded question. Oh, yeah, Carlos. How are you, buddy? Oh, great. <laughs> Do all lives matter? Absolutely, all lives matter. It's just the black lives matter as a movement. It just doesn't stem down to police brutality. I recall as a child seeing the pictures of black men hanging in trees being burned. While we're looking at you as a Caucasian female, that night I'd probably be hanging from a tree being burned. If you tie all these things together throughout history and you come to present day America, makes you kind of think, is there still that type of hate mentality that exists? When you listen to Carlos talk about that, does it make you think about things a little bit differently? Just five minutes of listening to him talk, I have way more respect and understanding for the situation. Yeah, me too. And honestly, probably the reason why you were never asked that before, because we never really wanted to touch the subject and make you feel uncomfortable. We generally take more time to talk about basketball. <laughs> I wish people would sit around a table eating cold pizza <laughs> and talk this way a little bit more. I think we'd be so much better off. It's a great piece, Katie. It's a, it's a, well, you know, the, the fact that people are sitting around talking, there needs to be more talking. More but how talking. interesting, these guys yeah. work together every day, yeah. and they've never had this conversation. And I think part of my goal in this series was to try to prompt and motivate people to have these uncomfortable conversations, yeah. to sit down and try to understand where the other person is coming from before kind of digging in their heels. And, you know, they can agree to disagree after it's over, but to actually have these face-to-face -face conversations, I think those are few and far between. And I think a lot of it is because of contemporary media. We're so siloed. We get, as a friend of mine said, affirmation instead of information from our you know, selected news source, which basically echoes often our own points of view back at us. And I think, you know, Brian Stevenson talks about, who I just admire so deeply, talks about the need to be proximate. And if you're not with people who are different than you, who have different life experiences, different perspectives, um, you, you can never actually have a, a, an exchange of ideas and an open-hearted conversation. And so I really did try to create, help people become reacquainted with their empathy muscle in the process of doing this documentary series. So just to wrap up, lightning round, journalists you most admire? Uh, well, I have to say Barbara Walters because she was such a barrier breaker and uh, that sounded like I was gonna say a different kind of breaker, but um, she, you know, she just, I, I love the fact that she was just so strong and stood up for women and really paved the way for many people like me. Toughest interview? Ross Perot because he was so pugnacious and such a bully. And he said, Katie, Katie, Katie. And he was very, uh, he was very condescending. And um, 
he made me, he, he scared me. And so did Yasser Arafat. He was scary. That was a scary dude. <laughs> favorite interview. Favorite interview? Oh, God. You know, that's hard. That's like your favorite meal. Um, favorite child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I, I've done, you know, I've, I'm very proud of the interview I did with Sarah Palin mm -hmm. because uh, I think it was really important at that moment yeah. in time. But also, you know, interviewing people, like everyday people during very traumatic times and witnessing their strength and courage. For example, the father who lost a son at Columbine and the young man who lost a sister. I interviewed them that next morning in mm. the snow in April and against a pitch black background. And I was very moved by their grace and dignity and strength to talk about this horrific incident. Horrific Person living or dead you'd most like to interview? Eleanor Roosevelt. Hmm. The best advice you ever received? Uh, well, my mom used to always tell us, let them know you're there. So I think she really wanted us to be very you took uh, that advice. assertive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, there, there's the funniest picture. I was going through all these old photos of me in kindergarten and everyone sitting like Indian style. Are you, is that, you probably can't say that anymore, but cross-legged. <laughs> on the floor and I am in the middle I am in the middle of the photo on my knees like towering over everyone and it was obviously like look at me look at me um, but but I think my mom you know my mom really encouraged us as I said to get out there and my dad I mean I know it sounds cliche but he always said do your best and um, and maybe that coffee cup don't let the turkeys get you down I think there are a lot of people who, for whatever reason, their own insecurity, their, you know, you're not gonna have everyone like you. They don't wanna see you succeed. And I think you have to put blinders on and just keep going. And, um, and so that's what I've tried to do. Well, you've, 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 you've accomplished an enormous amount. You've had a big impact. We didn't even talk us. about Stand Up to Cancer, but we'll do that another we'll do that time. Because I'm I, so proud of what we've done. We've, we've raised a lot of money for these scientific dream teams that are working together to come up with better treatments and hopefully one day a cure for all, a um, whole host of, of cancers. And we've changed the paradigm of how cancer research is conducted and raised over $500 million for science. So we're awesome. really proud of that. Really awesome. So. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you, David. Thank you it was great. Really thank great. You all. Thank you. Awesome. This podcast was recorded on May 11, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.